Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Welcome back, everyone. Just a quick video today to talk through the recently announced sanctions on Russia's central bank and the likely economic effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, there are much greater concerns than these economic issues. Uh, The ongoing situation is being described in the press as the worst crisis in Europe since the Second World War. And so the human impact of this invasion is both horrific and immeasurable. And my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine who are in a truly awful situation. Now, obviously, this is a very fast-moving situation, so I'm rushing to get this video up quickly. I don't usually upload on weekends, but the most recent news is that the United States, Canada, and European allies have all agreed earlier today to remove certain Russian financial institutions from SWIFT, but more importantly, to impose major restrictions on Russia's central bank. Now, there's been a lot of discussion around blocking Russia from SWIFT, and I made a video on the topic two days ago. But this move to target Russia's central bank is much more of a big deal, and it comes with very little precedent. Russia's central bank has more than $640 billion in foreign exchange reserves, much of which is held at various Western central banks. 23% of their reserves are held in gold, and that's stored at the Russian central bank. 14% is in China, which is probably safe from sanctions, and the rest, it would appear, is held at various central banks around the world. Now, this means that around $400 billion of Russia's central bank reserves have just been frozen, leaving them with around $240 billion in available reserves and a war that's possibly costing them $20 billion per day. Freezing or quarantining the country's reserves like this will put huge pressure on the Russian financial system, and it could trigger bank runs, tank the ruble, and cause panic amongst Russian businesses. The United States had already sanctioned Russia's largest banks, but Moscow was still able to use its foreign reserves to prop up those banks. Removing that option blocks Moscow's ability to bail out its banks. This action is the most severe financial measure imposed on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. The United States has previously only imposed sanctions on the central banks of Iran, Venezuela and North Korea. Cutting Russian banks out of SWIFT will make it more difficult for Russians to make cross-border transactions. But as I mentioned in my prior video, SWIFT is really just a messaging system. SWIFT sends payment instructions and confirmations, but the actual money is transferred by central bank RTGS systems. RTGS stands for Real-Time Gross Settlement. The sanctions on the Russian central bank are much more significant as they block money from moving at all. Other market news relating to this conflict is that S&P 
cut Russia's credit rating to junk status on Friday after the invasion. Additionally, Fitch lowered Ukraine's credit rating and Moody's warned that both countries could face cuts. The S&P credit downgrade strips Russia of its investment-grade rating, meaning that Russia would have to pay higher borrowing costs. Now, obviously, the credit rating barely matters now that Russia's central bank is being sanctioned. A low credit rating is the least of their problems when no one can lend to them anyhow. The credit rating agencies sort of specialize in closing the door after the horse has bolted. So what are the other economic effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, first up, Russia is the third largest oil producer in the world. They produce around 10 million barrels of oil per day. Russian oil was already trading at a discount in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine as nervous buyers backed away from dealing with Russia. There's obviously been a lot of talk in the press about Russian oil and gas exports, and of course some of the slow international response that we saw relates to how dependent some countries are on Russia for their energy needs. Nuclear power, for example, made up just over 13% of German electricity supply in 2021, and this was generated by six power plants, three of which were switched off at the end of last year. The remaining three are scheduled to be shut down in December of this year. This shutdown is part of a plan that was put in place by Gerhard Schroeder around 20 years ago, and then after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster, Angela Merkel set 2022 as the final deadline for shutting down all nuclear power in Germany. On top of this, the EU has been cutting the use of coal and other hydrocarbons in electricity generation to reach their climate goals, and they've been focusing on the build-out of renewable energy. The problem is that this build-out isn't happening quickly enough, so Europe is very dependent on Russia for natural gas right now. BP and Total Energies are the European oil producers that have the greatest exposure to Russia. BP owns almost 20% of Rosneft, one of Russia's largest oil producers, and this stake generated profits of more than $2.4 billion for BP last year. Next up, we have nitrogen, which is a key component in most synthetic fertilizers. And this is made by combining nitrogen from the air with hydrogen derived from methane to produce ammonia. The ammonia is then used to create other forms of nitrogen, including ammonium nitrate and urea. Natural gas is needed both for the methane and as a source of heat for the process. An increase in fertilizer prices can be expected to push up food prices around the world. The cost of fertilizer is not the only thing that could push up food prices around the world. Russia and Ukraine are both big grain exporters. The two countries combined make up almost a third of the world's wheat exports. Ukraine's output of grain and potatoes is amongst the highest in Europe, and it's among the world's largest producers of sugar beets and sunflower oil. Wheat and other grain prices have soared since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A number of Western food companies and brewers have operations in Ukraine. Mondela's, the maker of Cadbury's chocolate and Oreo cookies, announced last week that they were suspending operations at their two Ukrainian factories. Carlsberg, the world's third largest brewer, said 
that work at all three of their breweries in Ukraine have been halted. Cargill, the U.S. agricultural trading group, and Nestle, the world's largest food company, both have significant operations in Ukraine too that will be disrupted. Nestle announced that they've temporarily closed their three factories and service center in Ukraine. The disruption of grain exports from Ukraine and Russia could possibly lead to physical food shortages, particularly in countries that typically buy from Russia and Ukraine. These shortages could impact millions of people living in places like Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, Pakistan and Indonesia. These food shortages could, of course, then have political consequences in these countries. Food shortages often lead to uprisings. Wheat is the currency of currencies, according to Lenin, and even in the depths of the Cold War, the Soviet Union had to buy huge quantities of wheat from the United States. If Russia does want to sell wheat, they do still have rail links to China and could use these links to export grain. Now, you could argue that other grain-producing parts of the world could just plant more wheat to offset the Russian and Ukrainian shortage, but that would be dependent on the availability of fertilizers. Russia has prohibited the export of nitrogen fertilizer until April, and China has prohibited the export of phosphate fertilizer until at least June. For this reason, other producing areas around the world might struggle to increase production. Next up, let's talk about metals. Russia is a major source of widely used metals that are needed in manufacturing. Russia produces aluminium, nickel, palladium and titanium. And Ukraine is the world's third largest exporter of high-grade iron ore pellets. Excluding China, Russia accounts for 14% of the world's aluminium production. This is used in everything from drinks cans to automobiles. The price of aluminium is also strongly dependent on the price and availability of electricity. The cost of electricity makes up around a third of the total price. So we have a few moving parts here that could drive up prices. The financial strain inflicted by high natural gas prices, which jumped 30% on Thursday, has already forced several big metal producers to cut their output. Next up, Russia is the third largest producer of nickel worldwide, after Indonesia and the Philippines. Russia exported $3 billion worth of nickel in 2020. Nickel is an important metal used in batteries. Its price has already more than doubled over the last five years, leading car makers to look at alternative materials for their electric car batteries. Russia is also the leading global producer of palladium, making up 40% of global palladium supply. In 2020, Russian palladium production was 91 metric tons. Palladium is used in catalytic converters, electrodes and electronics. The top palladium consuming regions are China and North America. A reduction in the availability of palladium can be expected to hit the auto manufacturing sector. 
Now, Russia is the number two global source of platinum, which is also used in catalytic converters on cars. Russia produces 12% of the global platinum supply. This, however, is well behind South Africa, which produces 70% of the world's platinum output. Its major uses are in catalytic converters, lab equipment, electrical contacts, and jewellery. Ukraine is the sixth largest producer of titanium in the world. It's used in aircraft manufacturing, in particular by manufacturers like Airbus, Boeing and Rolls-Royce. It's also used in jewellery, prosthetics, tennis rackets, bicycle frames, surgical tools and mobile phones. Next up, Russia and Ukraine are key sources of two very important industrial gases, C4F6 and Neon, which are vital to semiconductor production. Ukraine produces a quarter of the world's neon, the price of which has tripled in the past six months due to Chinese steel mills that produce the gas as a byproduct being shut down for the Winter Olympics. Chip manufacturers could be affected if supplies from Ukraine are unavailable for an extended period. These gases are essential for chip manufacturing, particularly neon, which is used in lasers that etch features onto computer chips. The next industry we should discuss is banking. Western banks began cutting their exposure to Russia after the invasion of Crimea in 2014. But Raffaisen, the Austrian bank, makes more than a third of their profits in Russia. France's Société Générale has a Moscow-based subsidiary, Rossbank, that has 550 branches and 3 million Russian customers, while Unicredit operates 103 branches and has 2 million customers in the country. Russia accounted for 6% of Unicredit's profits last year and 4% of Sokgen's. Western law firms, management consulting firms and accounting firms all have offices in Russia and Ukraine too. Many of these firms have been busy getting their staff out of Ukraine and are preparing to be hit with counter-sanctions in Russia. These businesses would likely see a drop in profits. Manufacturing is, of course, an important sector of the Ukrainian economy. Products manufactured in the country include metal goods, transportation equipment, and other types of heavy machinery, a variety of chemicals, food products, and other goods. Ukraine ranks amongst the top steel producers in the world, and then the country's heavy industries produce trucks, automobiles, railway locomotives, freight cars, ships, hydroelectric equipment, and electric generators. Firms like Bosch have plants in Ukraine making components for cars, and there are other firms that manufacture electrical cables that are used in the automotive industry too. A number of car makers have factories in Russia, including Renault, Stellantis, Toyota, Kia, and Nissan. Of them all, Renault has the most exposure. They have three factories there and account for just under a third of the vehicles sold in Russia. Stellantis is the only automaker with a base in Russia that exports a significant volume of vehicles to Europe. The ongoing conflict and the tough sanctions can be expected to worsen the global supply chain disruptions, which we've been seeing over the last year and a half. 
the interconnected nature of the global supply chain and just-in-time manufacturing mean that a lot of important products used in manufacturing around the world may be in short supply for quite a while. Now, Russia and the United States don't have strong economic ties, and trade between the two is fairly minimal. The US has actively reduced its exposure to Russia as it's been trying to restrict Putin's influence and aiming to protect its own security interests from Russia. As of Saturday, the Kremlin had banned airlines from the UK, Bulgaria, Poland and the Czech Republic from flying over or landing on its territory. This has presented numerous operational difficulties for UK airlines, which would typically use Russian airspace when flying into parts of Asia, including China and Japan. Virgin Atlantic, for example, had to suspend a route that transported cargo between London and Shanghai, while British Airways confirmed it would reroute planes to avoid Russian airspace, leading to longer flight times and higher fuel costs. It can be expected that most, if not all, European airlines will be banned from Russian airspace. In fact, that's likely to happen before I get this video even uploaded to YouTube. Airline companies have most likely been making plans to deal with this issue, and they'll likely need to reroute around Russian airspace if banned. This is less of an issue right now, as there are far fewer flights from Europe to many cities in Asia at present, as many places are still closed to visitors because of coronavirus. Finnair is an airline that would be most affected by these flight disruptions, as they've built their long-haul business model around routes to Asia flying over Russia. Azerbaijan's air navigation services have opened up some additional air traffic routes for airlines looking to avoid Russian airspace. Now, obviously, the Russia-Ukraine situation is developing very rapidly, and there's a really good chance that this video is out of date by the time I get it uploaded. But hopefully you'll find some of the information in here useful. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.